In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul, in writing to the Corinthian Christians, is coming back to a topic that he dealt with before, his own apostolic credentials. Now, in chapters 8 and 9, he was dealing with the topic of giving and the collection that he was receiving on behalf of the Christians who were in need in Jerusalem. But now in chapter 10, as I said, he comes back to this topic of defending his apostolic credentials. Now, we in the 20th century may take a look at this and say, who really cares about this or that? But the, the whole context of the issue that Paul deals with him is, is so relevant to today. Because Paul is going to speak to us about what's important in perspective and relationship and in ministry as he defends his ministry as an apostle. Check it out here, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. And now, I, Paul, myself, in pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. Paul introduces this chapter with a change in tone. Matter of fact, some have even thought that 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13 are really a different letter altogether that somehow got tacked on to the first nine chapters. To me, this isn't likely, but it does show that Paul is really changing gears as he ends the letter. And he begins by pleading with the Corinthian Christians by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, it's important that he does this, because in the next few chapters, Paul's going to get a little rough with the Corinthian Christians. So he wants to say, I'm coming at you meekly, gently, as Christ would. He's doing it all in that context. And at the end of verse 1, he introduces a line that's very important for you to understand. Paul is revealing a matter that was in contention among the Corinthian Christians, an accusation that was made against him. Look at it at the end of verse 1. Who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold towards you. This was an accusation that the Corinthian Christians, or might I say, that Paul's opponents among the Corinthian Christians. We shouldn't think for a moment that the entire body of the Corinthian Christians, and we don't know how large that church was, 50, 100, I don't know. But however large it was, we shouldn't think that all of them had a bad opinion of Paul, but some of them did. And the ones who did were pretty active against Paul. They were energetic. And these ones who were energetic against Paul made this accusation. They said, Paul, when you're here among us, you're so sweet. You're so nice. You're so loving and gentle. But when you're away from us, you write us these letters and you're all tough and rough and mean. I'll tell you what you are, Paul. First of all, you're two-faced. Second of all, you're a coward. If you're so tough, be tough to our face. This was the kind of accusation that went on about Paul by his enemies in the church at Corinth in his absence. See, the Corinthians were criticizing Paul as if he were a dog. You know, the kind of dog that would bark loudly, but at a distance. When you get up close, then it backs down in any face-to-face confrontation. Now, how can this be true of Paul? That he was lowly among them, But absent, he was bold. But I want you to see that boldness and lowliness can be entirely consistent in the same person. Matter of fact, isn't that exactly describing the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ? Bold, yet lowly in heart. So let's work our way through this chapter and see how Paul develops the idea. He says, but I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Now, when Paul says, I intend to be bold against some, again, some reminds us that he's not talking about each and every Corinthian Christian, but some of them. And the criticism that he's uh, dealing with among them is that they are criticizing him because they are talking about him as if he walked according to the flesh. Again, they're talking about this perceived contradiction between his gentleness and his severity. Paul, you walk according to the flesh. You're not consistent. Now, I don't know about you, but this this almost frightens me. 
I'm almost scared to go on to verse 3. Everybody looks down at verse 3. Hold on here, I'll get to that. Uh, It cheers a pastor's heart to see people's head diving down into the scriptures. But just wait with me for a minute here. Can you imagine accusing the Apostle Paul that he walked according to the flesh? Now, I think much of this is a phenomenon of just human nature. People are always more admired at a distance. We look at the Apostle Paul now, and we're in awe of him. Oh my gosh, Paul. But you know what? The people who lived right up to him, some of them respected him, some of them didn't. Isn't that how it is with great figures? Think of great figures in history like Abraham Lincoln. You know, most people would say today that Lincoln was the greatest president this nation ever had. I mean, it can be debated, but certainly he's right up there. Well, in his day, he was almost universally vilified. And if you took his opinion ratings at the time, there were times when a vast majority of the country would have thought that he was unfit to lead the country. But time gives you a better perspective. Now, you take Paul and we from this distance exalt him, but back then there were actually people who were saying of Paul, he walks according to the flesh. And let me say something, it was sticking, at least in the mind of some people. In the mind of some people, there was evidence to say that Paul walked according to the flesh. And in citing his evidence, they'd say, well, look at him. He's bold in his letters. He comes among us, and he's a big, fat chicken. He's all nice, and, and, and he's all kind to us. Well, in verses 3 through 6, Paul is going to deal with this accusation according to whether or not he ministers according to the flesh. Look at this. Read verses 3 through 6. This is an awesome passage. For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Paul begins this marvelous section by saying, Look, we walk in the flesh. Oh, yeah, I'm a human being. I walk in the flesh just in the same sense that you walk in the flesh. Paul's not trying to say he's superhuman, that he's some kind of super apostle. No, he's a flesh and blood human being. He struggles with the same things that the Corinthian Christians struggled with. But Paul wants to make it clear that though he walks according to the flesh, he does not war according to the flesh. Now, what does this mean? Well, when he says, I do not war according to the flesh, I think he means it mainly in two aspects. First of all, he does not conduct the ministry that he has, which was like a spiritual war that he battled. I do not conduct my ministry according to the flesh. And secondly, more pointedly to the Corinthian Christians, I will not answer my critics according to the flesh. In other words, Paul says, I don't live my Christian life. I don't exercise my ministry, and I will not answer my critics according to the flesh. Why? He says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Do you know what the word carnal means? It means fleshly. Paul says, I am not using fleshly weapons in my warfare. My weapons are not material, but spiritual. They're suited for spiritual war. The carnal weapons that Paul refers to are not material weapons like swords and spears. Obviously, Paul would not go out and fight his battle with a sword. Yet, the carnal weapons he renounced are the manipulative and deceitful ways that his opponents used. Paul would not defend his apostolic credentials with the carnal weapons that other people might use. Now, before I go any further, Let me just stop right now and press a point home to every heart here. Anybody here in a battle in their life right now? Oh, you bet you are, aren't you? I don't need to elaborate. The Holy Spirit is telling you well and clear what kind of battle you're in in the midst of right now. Let me ask you a question. Are you fighting that battle with carnal weapons or spiritual weapons? That's the whole question here tonight. Are you trying to fight that battle with carnal weapons or spiritual weapons? 
Paul had a battle to fight. His particular battle right here, right now, was not only the battle for the souls of men, but the battle to defend his apostolic credentials. Okay, Paul, how are you going to do it? With carnal weapons or with spiritual? Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul lists the kind of spiritual weapons he did use. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. And to rely on these weapons takes faith in God instead of carnal methods. But let me tell you, those spiritual weapons, look at what Paul says they can do. They are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Well, friends, the Corinthian Christians, or at least some among them, they tended to rely on and admire carnal weapons for the Christian battle. You see, instead of the belt of truth, they fought with manipulation. Instead of the breastplate of righteousness, they fought with the image of success. Instead of the shoes of the gospel, they fought with smooth words. Instead of the shield of faith, they fought with the perception of power. Instead of the helmet of salvation, they fought with a lording over authority. And instead of the sword of the spirit, they fought with human schemes and human programs. Paul said, I'm not going to fight that. I'm going to trust in God and rely on spiritual weapons. And now, let me ask a very simple question. If these spiritual weapons are so great, if they're so mighty, why isn't everybody using them? Because it takes a lot of faith and a lot of humble trust in God to use it. You see, Jesus relied on spiritual weapons when he fought for our salvation. Let me describe to you Jesus' reliance on these kind of spiritual weapons in Philippians chapter 2 as it's described there. It says, Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Friends, let me tell you that that kind of victory through humble obedience offended the Corinthian Christians. You know why? It seems so weak. What am I supposed to do? Just lay my head down on the chopping block for my enemies? Humbly serve those who despise me? What, that Roman soldier tells me to carry his pack for a mile? What am I supposed to do? Carry it for two? Yes. That's your spiritual weapon. You see, that's why we don't use them, even when they're so mighty. Because they're hard to use. And they're humbling. And they're breaking. No, friends, the the carnal human way is to overpower and, and dominate and manipulate and outmaneuver. But the spiritual, the Jesus way, is to humble yourself, die to yourself, and let God show his resurrection power through you. Friends, that's the issue for the Corinthian church. And Paul says, I'm not using these carnal weapons. My weapons, look at verse 4, they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Oh, Alan Redpath put it so well. He said, apart from a mighty awakening and revival in the church, we are fighting a losing battle because we are resisting on carnal levels. This is not something that you settle in denominational headquarters or in the high courts of the ecclesiastical world. It's something you begin to settle here and now that causes the tide of the Holy Spirit power and life to flow once again in the church, which has been blocked Because we, as individual believers, have rejected God's principles. Well said, Alan Redbath. Friends, you need to understand something about our spiritual weapons and carnal weapons that are available. When we want to rely on overpowering and domination and manipulation and outmaneuvering, we kind of admire those weapons, or at least something in us does. 
But when we rely on spiritual weapons, those spiritual weapons are scorned by the world. The world laughs at them. Let me tell you who does not laugh at them. The devil does not laugh at those spiritual weapons. He's terrified of them. He'll let you win any victory you want by overpowering and domination and manipulation and outmaneuvering. The devil doesn't mind you winning those kind of victories at all because then you're just getting confirmed in your carnality. But when you start picking up those spiritual weapons, there's trembling in the counsels of Satan. When we fight with the truth, with righteousness, with evangelism, with faith, with salvation, with the word of God, with prayer, no principality or power can stand against us. There's an old commentator I have named John Trapp. I'm going to read this. It's funny to me. I don't know if it's going to be funny to anybody else here. I'm going out on a limb here. I don't really understand what he's saying, but I like reading it. (laughs) He says, As the spittle that comes out of a man's mouth slayeth serpents, so doth that which proceedeth out of the mouths of God's faithful ministers quell and kill evil imaginations, carnal reasonings, which are the legion of domestic devils that hold near intelligence with the old serpent. I don't know exactly what that means, but I know it means Satan doesn't like it when we fight with those spiritual weapons. It's true. You go out and battle the way God wants you to battle, laying down your life, following in the footsteps of Jesus. Satan hates it. Why does he hate it? Because you're going to pull down his strongholds. Did you see that in verse 4? They're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now, strongholds in this context are the wrong thoughts and perceptions contradicting the true knowledge of God and the nature of God. These strongholds express themselves. Look in verse 5 how they express themselves. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. You see, this reliance on carnal methods, this habit of carnal thinking, it's a true stronghold. It stubbornly sets down deep roots in the heart and the mind. It colors all of our actions and our thinking. It's hard to let go of the thinking that values the things and the ways of this world. But God's power really can break down strongholds. You know, Paul grew up in the land of Cilicia. Some 50 years before he was born, Roman armies had to tear down many rocky forts that pirates had built to defend themselves in Cilicia uh, against the Roman armies. And, and, and perhaps Paul had seen the ruins of those forts and, and he thought of the battle needed to conquer those strongholds. And he says, those were hard things to break down, but the Roman armies did it. And, and God's power using these spiritual means with these spiritual weapons, they can break down these strongholds as well. Alan Redpath writes, a practical way to battle with spiritual weapons and break down a stronghold. Listen, this is great. He says, when the thought comes and the person is reported to have said what he has said, and the unkindness has been passed over to us, and the criticism has been made, right? When you hear the bad things other people have been saying about you. He says then, whereas carnality would say counterattack, Spirituality recognizes that nothing any person could ever say about one of us is really one hundredth part as bad as the truth if he only knew it. Therefore, we have no real reason to counterattack, but one good reason to submit and to forget. Friends, that's battling with a spiritual weapon. The carnal weapon says counterattack. You're not going to get in my face. Let me give it back to you, brother. That's what carnality weapons says. I'm not going to let them push me around. I'll show them how strong I am. I'll show them how I can outmaneuver them or, or, or work in this situation. Jesus says, die to yourself. Go to the cross. Let me raise you again in my power. Praise God, strongholds can be pulled down, but they will only be pulled down with the spiritual weapons, not with the carnal ones. He speaks in verse 5 about 
casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. See, friends, carnal, worldly ways of thinking and doing are arguments against the mind and methods of God. They want to debate God. They want to say that they have a better way. Yeah, Lord, I know you say I should lay down my life, lay down my rights, but Lord, you don't know my situation. You don't know what they did to me. I've got a better idea here. You know what? You're arguing with God. You need to let the spiritual weapons cast down those arguments. What it's doing is it's exalting itself against the knowledge of God. Really now, isn't that what we do? When I want to fight my battles in a carnal way, I think I'm smarter, more sophisticated, more effective, more powerful than God in his ways. Carnal, worldly minds think they know more than God does. They're exalting themselves against the knowledge of God. Paul says, I'm going to apply some spiritual weapons to these and cast those down. We've got to remind ourselves here that Paul is speaking to carnal, worldly thinking among Christians. He isn't talking about the world here, folks. He's talking about the Corinthian Christians. They were the ones with the strongholds in their minds and in their hearts. They were the ones who made the arguments against God's mind and methods. They held on to every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We miss it entirely. If we think that the love of manipulation, the image of success, the smooth words, the perceptions of power, the lording over authority, and the human schemes and programs are just problems in the world. Paul was dealing with the heart and the mind in the church. So what do you do? Look at it at the end of verse 5. He says, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Well, to battle against this carnal way of thinking and doing, our thoughts must be brought captive and made obedient to Jesus. You see, friends, this was the whole struggle with the Corinthian church. You take a look at the Corinthian Christians from the beginning of this letter to the end and, and back into 1 Corinthians. They thought like the world. They were like, you know, pod people, you know, Christian bodies with worldly minds. And God says, we've got to change this. We've got to renew your, we've got to, excuse me, we've got to transform you by the renewing of your mind, as it says in Romans 12 too. The Corinthian Christians were conformed to the world in their minds. Paul says, let's do a transformation here. You need to transform. You need to be changed. You're thinking worldly, carnal. And how do you do it? You bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You see, Paul's first application is towards the carnal, worldly thinking of the Corinthian Christians that made them despise Paul and his weakness, doubting his apostolic credentials. They would have never entertained that against Paul unless they were thinking worldly. Never. If they were thinking spiritual, they would have been saying, oh, Paul, you're the greatest. I mean, we can't do enough for you. But Paul's principle here has a much broader application than just that. Friends, do you realize what Paul says here? He says that in Jesus Christ, with the spiritual weapons we're given, we can take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? We are not helpless victims of our thoughts. We are not helpless recipients of our thoughts. You know, we... And now, you know, it's the end of the holiday season. It's the first of the year coming up. Everybody's going to make resolutions. You look in the mirror, you think, I'm looking a little flabby. You know, I need to make some resolutions here. Well, let me tell you, more flabby than flabby bodies are flabby minds. Because you've got no discipline over your thoughts. And you, well, I can't discipline my thoughts. Yes, you can. You can take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We can choose to stop our thoughts and bring our thoughts captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Thoughts of lust, thoughts of anger, thoughts of fear, thoughts of greed, bitter thoughts, evil thoughts, they're part of, what does he say there? You look at it, verse 5 for yourself. Am I making this up? 
bringing every thought into captivity. Don't go scratching out that word every in your Bible, (laughs) holding on to those pet thoughts that you want to hold on to that are ungodly. No! Every thought can be brought captive to Jesus Christ. Again, this is not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You might object. You might say, well, wait a minute. I don't want my thoughts to be captive to anyone. I don't want my thoughts to be captive to Jesus. I want my thoughts to be free. Well, this is wrong, at least on two points. First of all, you belong to someone no matter what. Ultimately, you're either serving Jesus or you're serving Satan. As the esteemed theologian Bob Dylan said, (laughs) it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. That's just a fact, friends. You're living your life under somebody. So you're captive to somebody one way or the other. You just have to deal with that fact. Secondly, might I say that if you're a Christian, You have no business operating as a free agent with your mind. If you're a Christian, you are the purchased possession of Jesus Christ. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to Jesus Christ. Not only did he make you to begin with, he bought and paid for you. He did it at the cross. What's it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Well, friends, we need to take every thought captive. We belong to Jesus. Notice in verse 6 how Paul ends this little section, saying, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled... Paul was ready to confront the Corinthian Christians, but he wanted them to do as much as they were going to do first. That's what he means there when he says, when your obedience is fulfilled. Paul said, okay, you guys do as much as you can to get right before I come, and then I'll come and clean up what you didn't. But I'll give you a little bit of space, right? I'll give you a little space to correct whatever you can. So go ahead and do it, and then I'll come. Verse 7. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so are we are Christ. You see, here we are back to the Corinthian carnality. It's a worldly way of thinking to look at things just by outward appearance. And that's what they were doing. They were looking at Paul with outward appearances. And when you looked at Paul according to outward appearance... It wasn't that impressive. Now, you know, we don't have any photographs of the Apostle Paul, of course, and not any reliable paintings. We have some fairly reliable church traditions that tell us what Paul looked like. Again, this isn't gospel truth. It's not the Bible, but fairly reliable. First of all, they say he was short. One thing says a cubit and a half. No, Three cubits. Three cubits. Cubit and a half. That'd be about two feet high. That'd be a doll. That wouldn't be a person. Even so, three cubits, that's about four foot six. Maybe that's a little short. Maybe think maybe about five foot. He certainly wasn't big. He wasn't a big man. Uh, Bald head, crooked legs, and fairly strong kind of built body. His eyebrows were the kind of eyebrows that were continuous. Didn't look like he had two, but one long one. (coughs) And a very hooked nose, they said he had. Uh, Another document says that (coughs) he had a long beard with a lot of gray in it, and his hair had a lot of gray in it. I don't know. Hardly a guy with magnetic good looks. You see... He didn't have anything, the kind of thing you'd look at him and say, wow, that's impressive. Paul would not have made it as a televangelist today. But the people who knew Paul only on an outward surface level, only according to outward appearance, these were these ones criticizing him. That's all they looked at. They were thinking worldly. 
Now, look at what he says. He says at the end of verse 7, it's really kind of brilliant. He goes, look, <laughs> I, I like how he says this. If anyone is convinced himself that he is Christ, let him consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. You know what I think he's saying there? He's like, okay, according to outward appearance, I'm not that great. But then I think Paul said, well, look at yourselves. You're no prize either. And you belong to Christ, so why can't I? What, are you disqualifying me because the way I look? Paul said, put a mirror up. You guys aren't so winning beauty pageants yourselves, Corinthian Christians. So you belong to Christ, so do I. And he continues on, verse 8. He says, for even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. <laughs> Paul says, well, even if I should boast somewhat more, verse 8, he goes, I'm going to talk about my authority here, and I don't like to. It kind of feels like I'm bragging, but let me talk about this. He says, God gave me authority, and he gave me authority. Did you notice that in verse 8? He gave us authority for edification and not for destruction. Friends, that's such an important principle about authority. Paul says, God gave me authority in the church for edification, not for destruction. You know what edification is? It's building up. Paul says, that's why God gave me authority in the church, to build up, not to tear down. And I wish that everybody who had authority in the church would understand that. Pastor, why did God give you that authority? Not to tear down, but to build up. What are you doing tearing down people? God didn't give you authority for that. But you know, that's true on every sphere where God has given you authority. Is there some sphere in your life where God has given you authority? Maybe authority in your home. Maybe authority at your workplace. Maybe authority in government. I don't know whatever level God may have given you authority, but wherever he's given you authority, he's given it to you to build up, not to destroy. You know, if there's any destroying that needs to be done, let God do it. You know, he can do that. Why don't you just worry yourself with building up? Paul says, that's what God gave me to do with my authority. And he goes on, he's talking more about this accusation. You know, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. You see, Paul's despisers among the Corinthian Christians felt they had evidence against him. And this is his evidence. Well, Paul, you're tough in your letters, but you're weak and unimpressive in person. You're, you're weak, you're two-faced. But again, that's just relying on outward appearance. You say, my bodily presence is weak. Well, that's only outward appearance. You say, my speech is contemptible. Well, you're just talking about the style and presentation of my sermons. You see, in the ancient world, just as much today, they gave a lot of credit to a polished presentation, to the smooth talker. There was a very refined sense of oratory skill, of speech-making skill in the ancient world. And you had the speech-makers who go, well, my fellow audience, and it's been a story and funny anecdotes. Oh, the whole audience would be laughing. What a grow! Just yes, yes, we we applaud, we applaud. That's what they wanted from Paul. And Paul wouldn't give it to him. Paul spoke boldly, sharply, but he spoke the true message. Well, we don't like your speech. We don't like the way you look. You see, Paul's humility and his complete reliance on the power of God, not on the power of his own personality, coupled with his strong letters, that was being used against him. It's funny, we look at this and we don't understand. I don't know why they say his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. You know, when you read the book of Acts, it's hard to speech contemptible, what's that? You know, you know what I think it was? Again, I think that Paul's speaking didn't have the highly refined polish that they liked in that day. It wasn't as entertaining as they liked to hear. That was one thing. But the other aspect of it is, it may very well be that Paul was rather ill when he was among the Corinthians. He may not have been himself. So the message was still there, but maybe he was an awkward speaker up there. You know, he's up there in front of the Corinthians and makes a lot of awkward pauses. You know, it kind of makes everybody uncomfortable, right? You get on edge after a while, and it's not too entertaining. You kind of got, well, uh, you know, and 
maybe he was ill and not himself, and he couldn't, you know, it was hard for him to get going. And so he, he kept talking along, and that stopped for a while. And that's uncomfortable, isn't it? You know, and I, I think Paul just wasn't himself among the Corinthians, and plus he wasn't as entertaining as they wanted him to be. But whether his weakness in body and, and speaking ability diminishing was there, there's temporary or permanent, it didn't bother Paul. Paul says, look, when I'm weak, it gives God's power all the more room to work. So he just did ministry. And so he says, oh, did you notice that verse 11? I think I, I heard a few gasps when we read that verse. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent. Now, what was Paul in word by letters when he was absent? Yeah tough, stern. He said, such we will also be indeed when we are present. Paul says, so you say I'm two-faced. You say I'm tough in the letters, but nice when I'm among you. Okay, I'll give you consistency. Wait till I'm among you, and I'll show you tough. Paul needs to lay this down with the Corinthian Christians. Now, notice as he goes on and develops more the philosophy of all of this here. <clears throat> the Corinthian Christians, they, they wanted a consistent Paul, all right. They wanted a Paul who was consistently gentle, one that they could push around. But unless they changed, they'd get a consistent Paul, all right, consistently severe. Now he's going to paint more of this picture here, verse 12. He says, For we do not dare to class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves, comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Oh. Let me speak here tonight to anybody who has or is or may be in any kind of ministry. Take a close look at verse 12. We dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Now, Paul says, my opponents are those who compare, excuse me, who commend themselves, and I'm not going to class myself with them. That's what he says in the first part. We dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. You see, whoever Paul's opponents and critics were among the Corinthian Christians, they certainly thought highly of themselves, right? You'd have to think pretty highly of yourself to get in Paul's face. Paul says, I'm not going to class myself with those people. I'm not going to compare myself with those carnal, worldly people at all. Now, there are many people who are ready to commend themselves. Very few people will do it publicly. I mean, who's around, you know, I'm so great. I'm so wonderful. You should admire me because I'm so wonderful. Who says that? Nobody says that. A lot of people think it, don't they? A lot of people think it. They commend themselves, but they do it internally. Why do they commend themselves? Look, he'll tell you why in verse 12. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves... This explains why these carnal Corinthian critics of Paul could think so highly of themselves. Why? Because in their worldly ways of thinking, they just measured themselves by themselves, and then they compared themselves among themselves. Can I tell you, that's a pretty lame measuring stick. You see, this means two things. First of all, it means making yourself the measure of other people. And secondly, it means making others the measure of yourself. Well, this is wrong for at least two reasons. You see, first of all, let's be honest, there didn't seem to be a lot of really spiritual people among the Corinthian Christians to give a good comparison to. How much of a compliment was it to say, you're the most spiritual person in the Corinthian church? That's not a big compliment, is it? Because there's, I mean, that's a pretty low bar. But secondly, it's wrong because it measured on a human scale. It focused on outward appearance. 
You know, when you go around judging yourself against other people, first of all, you can't judge accurately. Because all you're judging on is what you see on the outside. And isn't that so often the, the, the most false and superficial thing, both in yourself and in them? You can't effectively compare your heart to their heart. And if you ever think you can, back off, because you can't. Friends, when we let the Holy Spirit measure us through God's word, first of all, he measures us on God's scale. Secondly, he looks at the heart. I don't know if there's anything I could communicate to pastors and church leaders and ministers today. It would say, stop measuring yourselves by yourselves. Stop comparing yourselves among yourselves. We should not make ourselves the measures of others, feeling we're superior to them, if by outward appearance we're more successful. Oh, that happens. Well, you know, I've got a bigger church than they do. I must be better before God. What garbage. Talk about measuring yourself by someone else. But then either it can go the other way too, right? We can make other people our measure and make uh, other people our measure feeling we're failures if by outward appearance they're more successful. Well, look, you know, by outward appearance, they seem to have it more to go. I guess I must not be right before God. Both of it's carnal. Both of it's worldly. Don't measure others by yourself, or don't measure yourself by others. What does Paul say about it? Look at the last few words. It is not wise. That's a simple analysis of the Corinthian approach of measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves. It's not wise. It isn't smart. It isn't of God. Don't do it. No. Look at the right measure of ministry. Verse 13. We will, however... Not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, the sphere which especially includes you. For we are not extending ourselves beyond our sphere, thus not reaching you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. You see, Paul here is talking about the limits of his authority in ministry. He talks about he would glory within the limits of the sphere which God has appointed us. Paul's ministry, or excuse me, Paul's authority in the church was not unlimited. God had granted him a sphere of authority, and that sphere included the Corinthian Christians, especially since he had founded that church. In other words, let's say there was another church that the Apostle Peter had founded. Paul wouldn't presume to go to that church. Well, let me tell you what to do. Paul says, no, God's given me a sphere of authority. I'm going to minister in that. It's also interesting when he says the limits of the sphere, the idea in the original Greek language there may be the idea of lanes that God gives a runner to run in. Paul's saying, look, I'm running in my own lane. I'm not running in somebody else's lane. Matter of fact, what the Corinthians were doing, if you take a look at this passage, and this is why Paul puts this in here, the Corinthians were starting to run in Paul's lane. But no, no, don't come in on my authority, Paul's saying. But we need to understand the principle that all godly authority has a sphere. It's important for the person in authority not to exercise that authority outside the sphere. And it's important for the person under authority to recognize the sphere of authority that they're under. And he goes, as you're Faith is increased, which should be greatly enlarged by you and our sphere. Because listen, as you guys grow, as you guys mature, the church is going to grow. It's going to plant more churches. Our sphere of ministry is going to be enlarged. But he says at the same time, friends, this is friend. This is important. Where he says <clears throat> there in verse fifteen that it, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is in other men's labors, or in verse sixteen, not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. You see, Paul is stressing the point that he has not and he will not take authority in another man's sphere. Why? Because that's exactly what his opponents among the Corinthian Christians were doing. They were taking Paul's authority. They were trying to boast in Paul's sphere of accomplishment. You see, Paul said, 
I'm not going to worm in on any other guy's actions, so to speak. And you guys shouldn't worm in on mine. You see, it's a funny thing, and it's even strange to even talk about it, but you know, it happens. It happens where people in a church just try to take authority that doesn't belong to them. God is raising up a leader, and that leader tries to cultivate a following after themselves and then try to take away some people after themselves. And that's what Paul is talking directly against here. Adam Clark, and he wrote this a couple hundred years ago. He said, it is base, abominable, and deeply sinful. Wow, tell us how you really feel, Adam. It's base, abominable, and deeply sinful for a man to thrust himself into other men's labors and by sowing doubtful disputations among a Christian people, distract and divide them that he may get a party to himself. This is an evil that has prevailed much in all ages of the church. There is at present much of it in the Christian world, and Christianity is disgraced by it. It's true today. Now, he wraps it up in beautiful fashion, verses 17 18, where he talks about the importance of the Lord's condemnation commendation. You see, if we don't measure ourselves by ourselves or by others, then who do we measure ourselves by? Verse 17, 18. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Hmm. Now, Paul is quoting here from Jeremiah 9, 24, and he's rebuking the Corinthian Christians who are finding their glory either in Paul or against Paul. And Paul sweeps all that away. He says, you know what? Don't glory in yourself. Don't glory in another. Don't glory against another. Glory only in the Lord. I think maybe Paul's trying to jog their memory to the whole passage from Jeremiah chapter 9. Let me read you Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. This is on fire. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glory glories in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. You see, the Corinthian Christians were just the types to glory in wisdom, in might, and in riches instead of glorying in the Lord. And Paul says, you guys are worldly. That's what you're comparing yourselves. You know, when you compare yourself with another person, you're going to invariably compare wisdom and might and riches. And Paul says, that's not what you should be glorying in anyway. So don't compare yourself with another. Look for the glory that comes from the Lord. You know the great thing about glorying in the Lord? You can always do it. Always. You can always glory in the Lord. No one is so high that they can't be lifted higher in glory in the Lord. And let me tell you what else. No one is so low that you can't glory in the Lord. I don't care how low you are. You can be as low as an earthworm here this, this evening. You could be brought so low. It doesn't matter. You can glory in the Lord. You may have nothing to glory in you, nothing at all. You can still glory in the Lord. He finishes up by saying, not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. You know, it doesn't matter how you testify about your own accomplishments. It's what God says about us that matters and will endure. You know, it almost sounds funny, doesn't it? Because Paul, in a sense here, is battling for the respect of the Corinthian Christians, isn't he? He's saying, you guys have to respect me. But it's important that you understand, he didn't want it for his own sake. It's not like Paul's saying, I feel so down, and those Corinthian Christians aren't respecting me. Can't you guys just build me up and respect me? That's not it at all. Paul didn't want the respect of the Corinthian Christians for his sake, but for their sake. He knew it was hurting them to distance themselves from him as their apostle. 
You see, he knew that they were hurting their own spiritual growth and maturity in their rejection from the Lord, in the rejection of him. But as for himself, Paul was satisfied with the approval that came from the Lord. And friends, this is the place where every Christian, and especially every person in ministry must be. It's a dangerous thing to commend oneself or to approve oneself or even to seek for that commendation from other people. Friends, is it enough for you to glory in the Lord? That's where God wants to put each and every one of us. And, you know, maybe honestly, in the integrity of your heart right now tonight, you'd say, David, I'm not there. I have to have the strokes. I have to have the accolades, even in a small way. I have to have the praise or commendation of other people, or I just can't make it. Maybe that's where you're at. Well, you know what? Ask God tonight, Lord, build in me a heart that's satisfied just with glorying in you. Build in me that, God. I'm not there right now, Lord, but build that in me. Might I say, if you have any heart to embark on ministry, make that the passionate prayer of your life. Because I'll tell you, if you have a heart and a mind that relies on the praise and the commendation, not condemnation, the commendation of other people, you're not safe in the ministry. We need to come to the place where we can just glory in the Lord. So, Father, that's where we come before you tonight. We, um, we need to be lifted to that place. Or that's enough for us, Lord, to, to glory in you. And we ask that you do that work in us, Lord. It seems like such a big work, God. It, it's really going to take the transformation of our mind. So transform us, Lord, by the renewing of our minds in Jesus Christ. We don't want to approach this battle with the carnal weapons, with spiritual ones. We want you to build in us humble, Jesus-like hearts that are satisfied with glory in you. Lord, we think of our Lord Jesus in his ministry on this earth. How he never needed the praise or the accolades of man, but could just glory in his Father in heaven. That's how we want to be. We want to, Lord. We need to be more like Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name.